0: Acts chapter 6, starting at verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Chapter 7. And the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. And said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred, and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died God removed him from there into this land, in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a as a possession, and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God. After that, they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs and the patriarchs jealous of joseph sold him into egypt but god was with him and, re- and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before pharaoh king of egypt who made him ruler over egypt and over all his household now there came a famine throughout all of egypt and canaan and great affliction and our fathers could not could find no food But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob and his fathers and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, and he he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. But as as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, and people increased and multiplied in Egypt, and there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph, he dealt shrewdly with our grace and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. And at this time Moses was born and he was beautiful in God's sight and he was brought up for 3 months in his father's house and when he was exposed Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son and Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and he was mighty in his in words and deeds when he was 40 years old it came into his heart to visit his brothers the children of Israel And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them, and they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now when forty years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, in a flame of fire and a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near and to look, there came the voice of the Lord, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and and Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses whom they rejected saying who made you ruler and judge this man god sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush this man led them out performing wonders and signs in egypt and at the red sea and in the wilderness for 40 years this is the moses who said to the israelites god will raise up for you a prophet like me from from your brothers This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel, who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days, And offered a sacrifice to the idol, and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me slain beasts and sacrifices during the forty years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch, and the star of your god, Rephin, the images that you made to worship. And I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made of hands, as the prophet said. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all those things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, So so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those... Who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by the angels and did not keep it. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened, and the Son of Man. Standing at the right hand of God, but they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he cried out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentations over him, but Saul was ravaging the church, entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated.
1: I think we could give Scott a
0: round of applause. Thank you, Scott.
1: You're like, is he going to go verse by verse today? Like, we we have Vision Night tonight. We're going to have a brief intermission between now and Vision Night um, in order to get your food and come back. And um, so, uh, in all seriousness tonight is going to be a, a night where we are going to unify our hearts around why God has us here in this time and space of history in downtown Orlando. There's a reason why we're here. There's a reason why our church exists. There's a reason why Cross Point Downtown is in Orlando today, and that is to see the name of Jesus made known as the name above every other name this city can make known. That's our that's our purpose. That's our calling. That's our goal. That's why we do what we do each and every day. Is that we would worship King Jesus and make Him known. To love God with all our hearts. To love others, and then to live a life dedicated on mission to Him. Um, I want to I want to pray. I want to recognize, um, yesterday there was a tragedy in, in a uh, synagogue in Pittsburgh, um, and a man who was determined to end the lives of those who he thought was lesser than him. Um, he killed, I think the the death toll is up to 13 or so now. Um, 13 Jewish worshipers in a synagogue were killed, and so I want to give our hearts and our minds and our prayers to that community, asking that God would use this tragedy to show his triumph in Christ. So, Father, we ask it. We ask it, God. We grieve, God, that, that people's lives are taken. God, the, the life that, that you've given us is so precious. And to see it, God, just just taken in a moment, Lord, is, is heartbreaking. And, um, Lord, we, we offer our sympathy. We offer our condolences. We offer, God, what we can in a, a, a hundreds and hundreds of miles away in a different state, which is our prayers. God, we believe that you're at work even in this tragedy. And that, God, the triumph of Christ, I pray it would prevail. And that, God, you would show uh, the wonders of your mercy and grace in Jesus' name to them. We all ask it. Amen. Amen. Okay. So, a lot to cover, little time. Um, I, I want to I invite you into the story that's taking place here today. You, you see in the passage that we read, there, there is a story. There's the story of Stephen. There's the story of the Israelite history, and there's the story of the surrounding world that he's in in that time period. There's all these stories going on, and I want to make something obvious to us today. There's a lot of stories that have converged here today as our lives were brought into this Fitnasium. Everybody here has a story that you're telling. Everybody here has a story that you're shouting out so that people can... Understand your life, live your life. Our story is our vision for life that we project to the world around us. You, you have this vision in life that you project to the world around us. How you want to be seen, how you want to be known, how you, under, how you want to be understood. And, and that's your story, that's your vision for life. And you have brought that story here today. And many things have shaped your story and my story. They're, they're shaped with joys and they're shaped with heartbreak. They're shaped with loneliness, loneliness and they're shaped with fullness of presence. There's many different things that have shaped the story of our lives. And here we have the, the life of Stephen, which is a story we, we just were invited into at the beginning of chapter 6. We know that Stephen was a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, whom God ordained for his church to meet the needs of the widows. In the beginning of chapter 6, and in chapter, at the end of chapter 6, he's on trial. And by the end of chapter 7, he's the first martyr that the church had seen. It's pretty remarkable. We have a story that we're telling. I, I often think about my story and I, I was thinking about this the other day. You know, if if there were three images, three pictures that you could use to represent your life story, what would those three pictures be? Let, let me give you a little snapshot of mine. Uh, on March 12, thousand two, I was baptized in a hotel conference room pool. I had came from. Uh, West Palm Beach, Lake Worth, Florida to Orlando, Florida. Do we have that picture by the way? I'm not sure if there's uh, somebody rolling on the the picture. I guess we don't. So that completely takes out this in- illustration. I was a lot thinner back then and um, serious I was. But So picture me about 30 pounds lighter. There we go. Um, so uh, it was a hotel conference room pool and there's about Nine or ten other people that were with me. And uh, I was baptized by coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And this moment in my life, this moment in my story represented the history of what God had been doing in my life to draw me to himself up to this point. I came to college thinking I'm going to live the college life. I had two goals in mind. Number one, have fun. Number two, make sure I could continue having fun by making dad happy with my grades, right? That was my goal. I want to have the best time I possibly could, but I also wanted to make sure that I could uh, make dad happy to continue to pay for the bills so that I uh, had to get good grades as a result but God reoriented that life that I had that plan that I had that story that I had in mind and he gave me a new story he gave me a new identity where I had thought I was falling after Christ it was growing up in a culturally Christian home up growing up in a culturally Christian environment God showed me right smack dab in the middle of it that I knew God with my mind, but I never really fully worshipped him with my heart. In other words, I was giving lip service to my relationship with God. And what did God do? He saved me from that. That was in March of 2002 where that kind of culminated with my baptism. A little bit later, January 21st, 2006, my wife said yes. There's hope for you if you're single. My wife said, yes. She said, I do. I was, I was still amazed. I was on the altar. I'm like, seriously? Like, you're really doing this? Wow, you are crazy, woman. I can't believe it. And we were wed in marriage. And it was a, a beautiful moment of surrender to God and surrender to one another. And I, I honestly struggle to recall my life before marrying her. I mean, she is just so much a part of my life. We're so connected that I struggle to recall life before her, even though I've lived more than half of my life not, apart, not, not with her. Um, been married going on 13 years. Uh, the next moment is March 24th, 2009. You, you see, there's my wife in the hospital with the birth of our first and our second born, Camden and Adeline. And oh, what a journey. Camden is on the left, and adeline 's on the right. Camden was four point two pounds. Adeline was three point eight. That was about five minutes before they rushed them up into the NICU and put these in their little incubator boxes and All you could do is kind of stick your fingers in and kind of pet them you know when when you were in there to visit them and the the one night I was so giddy after having our children that morning I mean I worked so hard for it, right I mean guys, can you understand? I was, <laughs> but I was so giddy. I, I think we had, they were born around 1 or 2 a.m. that morning. And then it was about 9 or 10 p.m. The, the, that night that I, I couldn't sleep. And so I, I walked up into them and I was just petting them. And then the nurse came in and she said, y- You know, you can actually hold them. I said, Really? She's like, Yeah, do you want to hold your daughter? I said, Would I ever? And I still remember. I sat down on this kind of rocking chair, glider type deal, and she took Adeline. I mean, she was so small. She took Adeline and she uh, took off her onesie. And I just brought my shirt out just a little bit. She put it right inside of my shirt, and then, skin to skin, man, on my chest, it was the most precious thing. And I could feel my 3.8 pound daughter's heart beating. She was alive. She was alive, and something else came alive in me on that day. It's a little bit of, of my story. But what I tell you, there's so much that's mixed in that. Like, I mean, that's the Facebook version, right? That's the, that's the fake book version of it, right? I mean, those things were great, and I'm going to tell you the great parts, but I'm not going to tell you about the six months marriage counseling that we had. <laughs> right? I'm not going to tell you the times that I failed as a father to my children, I'm not going to tell you of the times of ministry that have just been absolutely emptying of me or the times of my faith where I felt like giving up. Those are all a part of our story, good, bad, and ugly. Those are all part of our story. And I want to take this moment and invite you in to say that all of your story is the story that God wants. All of it. The good, the bad, and the ugly. God wants it. God says, give it to me. God says, it's mine. And God says that I'm going to use it for Christ's glory in you. In your hardship. In your struggle. In your joy. In your pain. In your anxiety. In your depression. And in your fear. I'm going to use your story. And make your story all about Christ's glory. Because your story belongs to him will you give it to him will you give it to him Jimmy Fallon the comedian he said in an interview that if he didn't get on Saturday Night Live before he hit 25 in age he was going to kill himself that's a story that Jimmy Fallon was living by that's a narrative that was important for him that was a story that began to shape his life is a story that he lived for Lance Armstrong, you know, is the uh, world champion racer. You know, we used to really like Lance Armstrong until we found out Lance Armstrong was cheating, didn't we? And here's what Lance Armstrong said in an in interview prior to that moment. He said, I like to win, but more than anything, I can't stand the idea of losing because to me, that equals death. Do do you hear the story? Do you hear the story that shaped Lance Armstrong's life? Do you hear the story that shaped the way he lived? I mean, it's a story of lordship. It's a story of leadership. I must have this thing, and if I don't have this thing, then I'm going to die. And there's a story that's like that, that has also shaped our life. And we see this in the life of Stephen, actually. We don't, know how many, we don't know how old Stephen was. We don't know if he was married. We don't know if he had children. We know about Stephen that he was a man who was full of the Spirit. That's the first point for our time today. Stephen was full of the Spirit. That's the, that, that's the importance of the story of God in your life. If you are going to tell the story of Jesus Christ as the story above all stories, you must be filled with the spirit because you can't tell the story otherwise. You have to be filled with the Holy Spirit. What, are, what is the controlling thing in your life? If someone who is filled with anger, they are. if someone's controlled with anger, they're known as an angry person, aren't they? If someone is filled with lustful thoughts, and those lustful thoughts control them, then they are under the influence of those lustful thoughts, and those lustful thoughts have control over their body. This is why Paul says in Ephesians, not to be filled with wine. As he says in five, chapter 5, verse 18, don't be get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. So, what Paul is saying is, is don't be drunk or don't be filled with wine, meaning that don't let wine have control of your body. Because if you let wine or alcohol have control of your body in drunkenness, then you have no opportunity for the spirit to fill you, for the spirit to have control over you. And so if we're going to tell the story of Jesus, you can, you can fill the blank in with, with anything there. What is the thing that controls you? What is the thing that directs your urges? What is the thing that guides you in life? And if it's not the Spirit, that thing is Lord. That thing's directing you. That thing has ownership of you. That is the controlling factor of your life. But be filled with the spirit that we would be drunk with the spirit that we would be under the influence of the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit would be working in us. And what does it mean to be filled with the spirit? Well, it means that God's spirit has come into our lives in such a way that what we say with our mouths that Jesus is Lord the Holy Spirit makes it true of the, in the lives that we live. That when we are filled with the Spirit, we give ourselves fully and totally to God and we say, God, my life does not belong to me, but my life belongs to you. And we follow him with wisdom and discernment. And that's what Stephen was doing here in that time. You know, Stephen had just seen... Peter and John being beaten. Stephen had known about Jesus Christ who suffered and died and was crucified. Do You think that Stephen would, would probably think, you know, I'm not going to be too radical because I'm going to get in trouble. If I'm too radical, I'm probably going to get in trouble. But no, Stephen was not thinking that way. It says here that Stephen did wonders and signs and that We know also that Stephen was a man of the word of God, filled with the spirit, filled with wisdom, filled with faith and filled with grace. And these were the things that filled Stephen in such a way that if you met Stephen, you would see the measure of Christ in this man. And so Stephen could not help but to do the works and the wonders through the word of Christ. And so he told of Christ he proclaimed Christ, but he had been warned, like with Peter and John, not to proclaim this man, Jesus, nor the resurrection. And so Jesus was or so Stephen was on, on trial. There was an accusation, an accusation of blasphemy. Blasphemy, it meant that Stephen was dishonoring God. He was dishonoring God. How was he dishonoring God? By speaking against Moses In the law and the temple, those were the things that Stephen did that were blasphemous to God. But here in chapter six, verse 15, and gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. So you see God's favor descend upon Stephen, where Stephen in this trial, you can almost picture it like the way they drove trials where photographers aren't allowed to come in and you see those who are making the accusation and you see Stephen on the bench and Stephen is giving a countenance of holiness and innocence. It's God's declaration that Stephen belongs to him and then he is walking in righteousness, and so you see God's favor even on Stephen in the time of most difficulty, and you see that Stephen. In the second part of this, we're going to breeze through chapter verses one through fifty. There's there's a, a lot there, but what you see is a summary of all the Bible in those in in that chapter. You see a, a summary of all the scriptures. And you see that, that Stephen sees the story of God differently than his accusers do. Stephen, Stephen sees the story of God different from those who are trying to, who, who are trying to get rid of this, this Christian faith, who are trying to get rid of any remnant of this man Jesus. Stephen is saying, we can't get rid of it because that's what all the story's about. That's what all the scriptures are about. There's a warning here, I think, for us. You could know the scriptures. You could read the scriptures. you You could memorize the scriptures. But even in all your knowledge of the scriptures, you could know them, but not ever understand the point of them. I've known a lot of people with Bible knowledge. I've known a lot of people that had a lot more Bible knowledge of me that could take me to task. And it's been a reminder to me as I've seen those people and I've seen in it just kind of the stale form or shell of emptiness surrounding their Bible knowledge. They found their Bible knowledge as a way to increase their intellect and their knowledge of God as a way to win a debate. But yet on the inside, there's a void. And that void is something that Stephen is speaking right to. He says, I know Moses also. I know about the law, and let me tell you about the law. I know about the temple, and I want to tell you about the temple. I know about Abraham and the promise of his land. So, so, so back in these time periods, it was kind of like it was kind of like if you were a, a Jewish boy growing up, you were eight or nine, you would make sure you took your mom with you to Toys R Us because Toys R Us was open back then. And when you went to Toys R Us, you would see the latest and greatest development of the promised land and all its action figures and hero set. There would be the Moses action figure. There would be the Abraham action figure. There would be the Joseph action figure. And then there would be like David and Goliath. And David would have his massive slingshot. And Goliath would be all bloodied up and torn down. And if you were one of a a, a Jewish boy, you would try to identify with those characters. And you you would pick teams based upon them. I want to be David. Or I want to be Moses. Or I want to be Abraham. And those were the guys that you wanted to, to be like. And so there's a, 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 there's a lot of tradition built around these character. And the tradition was really built around these three things. The land, the law, and the temple. The land, the law, and the temple. That's kind of a summary of verses 1 through 50. There's the land. And the land came as a way of God's promise to Abraham. You, you remember Abraham? Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I don't remember any of the rest. <laughs> but Father Abraham was the one whom God gave a promise to that he would be the father of many nations. That his, his, that his, his descendants would outnumber the stars in the sky. But there was one problem. Abraham didn't have a son. And he gave him the promise of land when Abraham was a sojourner. And that's why in Acts chapter six, or um, that's why in Hebrews chapter 11, the author of Hebrews defines what this means: By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. Isn't that the promise of God? that you're going to receive this thing and you have to trust me and you have to believe in me and you're not going to know where you're going? I mean, that's the promise we live each and every day is that tomorrow we don't know where we're going. We don't know what's going to happen in our life. We don't know what's going to happen in our family. We don't know what the difficulties that are going to take place. But by faith, we have to believe that the promise is true and the promise is that God is going to provide. He's going to protect. He's going to take care of us. And that's the promise of the land because the land represented God's protection, God's provision, and God's grace. The point of the land was not the land. The point of the land was the promise that God gave them in Christ. Do you see that the land was a signpost to a better reality? And the land was that there is no land that can contain God and so God came and sent his son to fulfill that promise, to bring reality to that promise that we are inheritors of all of God's land as his children. We get it all because he gets it all. That's a fulfillment of that promise. So he, he took that sacred cow that the Jews were idolizing of the land and he just he just obliterated it. Stephen obliterated it. Second, the law. The law. The Ten Commandments. Oh, the Ten Commandments were so powerful. They did not know up from down. Am I doing right? Am I doing wrong? How do I know what pleases God? God gives Moses the Ten Commandments. You might remember that Moses was in this presence or he had this display of the Shekinah glory after being in the presence of God, bringing the Ten Commandments. No sooner that Moses brought down the Ten Commandments did the Israelites reject the Ten Commandments and Moses. By creating for themselves an idol made of gold in the image of the Egyptian idols that they had just left, they were bringing that idolatry with them. They were saying, I don't want the law of God. I want to do what I want to do. I'm going to make my own rules. But God, through his law, gave us an awareness of our sinfulness. That's what the law does. It says if you're doing right from wrong. It says if you're honoring God or dishonoring God. It says if you're deserving God's judgment or you're deserving God's, God's incredible and amazing glory. But yet, the Ten Commandments also show us that we have no ability of falling them, not even one. That's what the Ten Commandments show us. I mean, how how many of you have never lied? Anybody in the room? Anybody in the room? Nobody. Nobody has never lied. I asked my my daughter this the other question, or, or this question the other day. I said, Adeline, have you ever lied?" Well, yeah. Okay, so let, let's talk about this. And she said, "It wasn't that big of a lie, and it didn't really impact any other people." And I said, "But was was it something that?" glorifies and honors God, she said, no. And I said, this is why we're called to walk and live in repentance. Because Adeline, I've done what you've done. And so it was a teachable moment for us to realize that the law of God shows us our need for the grace of God. And G- and, and Stephen is schooling them here in the law of God to show them not that they have the ability to keep the law, but they need Jesus to bring fulfillment to the law. To be perfectly obedient to the law on our behalf. And then finally, the temple. The temple. The dwelling place of God. The temple was uh, a, a, a tent of meeting. When the Israelites were in the wilderness, they would set up the tent of meeting. And it would had these two sections. In it, the holy place and the most holy place. The holy place, there's only a few people that can go into there. The most holy place was a place where only the high priest can go in and only once a year. And he had to go through this cleansing ritual of perfection to get in the place to begin with. Everything that he could do to cleanse himself had to be done in order to enter that most holy place to offer sacrifice. And he had to do it first for himself and then for the people. That was in the temple, the most holy holy place. I think about when I had to get surgery and when I went into the pre-op, they gave me this cleansing scrub and they said, you're going to use this once and you're going to make sure that you clean every part of you and then you don't touch anything after that. And if you do touch anything, you got to get another shower and, you know, anyway, it was just a mess. And so the, the idea of it was to get me as clean as I possibly could so that way I didn't infect anyone else because then the presence, you, you don't want to bring any infectious diseases into the hospital because it could get, get everybody else sick sick but the, also the thing that's known here in the high priest with the high priest in the temple is that the high priest could not root, defile god by bringing sin into the same room with a holy and righteous god if he did then there is a rope that was tied to his ankle that had bells on it and if they stopped hearing the bells ringing in the most holy place then they would just fish him out they would just bring him back in and they need a new high priest after that. Who's the next guy going in? Not me. Not me. But what did the temple tell us? The temple tells us that there would be a perfect sacrifice, a once and for all sacrifice that would come. That's what the author of Hebrews says. There would be a sacrifice that would be the sacrifices of all sacrifices. Why? Because Jesus went into that most holy place not confessing any of his sins, but because he was the perfect offering for sin. And so he didn't have to offer a sacrifice for himself and then the people, but he offered himself as the sacrifice of sacrifices. And so Jesus brought to fulfillment the sacrifice, temple and the sacrificial system by abolishing it, saying that animal sacrifices cannot take away human sin. So a human needed to be offered in a perfect one, and that's Christ. This is why you'll never be able to atone for your own sin. You will never be able to work hard enough to undo what you did yesterday. You will never be able to. This is why you need grace. This is why you need Christ. Because Christ comes as the perfect sacrifice so the wrath of God doesn't bear down for us on our big lies or our little lies, on our murder nor our deceit. But the wrath of God comes against the unrighteousness of man who, with their stiff necks, refuse Christ. That's when the wrath of God comes. And that's what Stephen starts to say. This is what the story is all about. This is what the story is is all about you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. In other words, God is bringing you to a knowledge of himself, and you're saying, I don't want it. I don't want it. I don't want it. God is inviting you to live your life for his story and his glory. And you're saying, I can't do it. I want this life to be all about me. And so resisting the Holy Spirit is, is in effect saying, God, I don't want you. I'd rather have the idol in Egypt. I'd rather have the idolatry and be in slavery in Egypt than to have the promised land that you have to offer. This is what the Israelites did, as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? We see, Joseph was betrayed by his own brothers, sold into slavery, and he went into he went into Pharaoh's house, became the right hand ruler to the king himself, and Joseph. The one whom the brothers rejected and would have had murdered became the Savior. Moses was rejected. Moses was rejected by the Israelites. He was the one who was sent in a a small little raft as a little boy down the river into Pharaoh's household, brought into Pharaoh's household, and then brought from Egypt into the wilderness. And Moses himself was rejected. Why, Moses? Why don't we have food? Even when he led him out of Israel, even when he led him out of slavery, the Israelites rejected Moses. Do you see that Moses and Joseph weren't perfect by any stretch of our imagination? But Moses and Joseph and the others were signposts pointing to who would come Christ. And so when you read the Old Testament figures, man, they're heroes of faith, but they're heroes that point to a bigger and greater hero. They're heroes that point to King Jesus, who is their hero, who is their savior. So the land, the law, and the temple were signposts pointing to Christ. And then there was the suffering in verse 54 through 60. Suffering. This is what makes it really hard to live for the story of God. Because we wonder, will we have to suffer? I've been doing a lot of reading on Western culture recently. I've been listening and absorbing a lot of podcasts. And the more I read and the more I absorb, the more I realize that Western civilization, Western culture—that's America, that's Europe, that's uh, much of the the Westernized or first world—that we are the most ill-equipped for suffering than any generation that has ever existed. And because we are so ill-equipped for suffering, we we try so desperately to avoid it. But here Stephen is brought into the service of Christ and said, By the power of the Holy Spirit, God, I belong to you, so my life is not my own. And so Stephen was able to look his accusers in the face with courage and say, You are rejecting the one who suffered for you. You are the one who are rejecting the one who died for you. And their anger and wrath burned against Stephen. And Stephen was stoned on that day. He was killed on that day as a martyr, as the first ever witness. That's where the word martyr comes from, witness. He was killed. This tells us that Man, the story of God, living the story of God means that there are some things that I'm going to have to go through, some difficulties that I'm going to have to endure and experience. When my kids were little, Lily in particular, we used to like this book that, um, uh, man, I forget what it's called. I, I, I even had the book in my backpack, I and mean, I forget what it's called. Um, but they're going on a bear hunt, going to catch a big one. I'm not afraid. You know that book? Anybody ever read that book to your kids? Anybody? Got a few of us? Okay. Man, that's maybe, I'm I'm dating myself here. And so when when I would read that book, Lily would be like, ooh. And I'd say, gonna catch a big one. I'm not afraid. Oh, no, a forest, a big dark forest. Can't go under it. Lily would go, no, no under it. Can't go over it. No, can't go over it. Gotta go through it. And she goes, mm-hmm, got to go through it. <laughs> you know, there's a, there's a lesson there. There's a lesson there. We're all going to go through difficult times, and, and I have this tendency to try to avoid those difficulties at all costs. I have a, a tendency to avoid suffering, hard conversations. I have a tendency to avoid uncomfortable realities at all costs. Can I go, can I go under it? Can I go over it? Can I somewhere scoot around it? But you know when sanctification kind of molds us best isn't when we try to avoid it, but it's when we're willing to allow God to take us through it. And I tell you, we don't go through it alone, but he takes us through it. He takes us through it. And in those difficulties, he's shaping us and he's molding us into his image. And in John 5, 39 and 40, Jesus gives us this reality about the scriptures and about the story. He says, You search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Part of the reason people avoid coming to Jesus isn't because Jesus is unbelievable, but because Jesus, the life, the way of Christ is incredibly difficult. You've all known people who have left the faith. And when have they left the faith? It's not because they have a good theological argument to do so. It's not because somehow they have now come into a a new age of wisdom and philosophy. No, they've slowly drifted because they couldn't handle the difficulties of faith. Now, let me tell you this truth. The difficulties of faith, while we think come with pain and suffering and sorrow, which they often do. They also come with a joy that outweighs them all. The difficulties of faith produces in us a hope in Christ that endures forever. That hope is not gonna be produced any other way. There is something that God is doing in you through these difficulties where you have to trust him like Abraham trusted the promise of God. And I'm telling you, just like me, you are not going to do that perfectly. But God is going to take you through those things. He is going to hold you by the hand. He is going to guide you by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus, or uh, in Acts chapter 7, it says, But he, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. He had this vision of Jesus standing at the right hand of God. It's an interesting vision because many times that you read about Jesus in the the heavenly realm, you you see him sitting down. The book of Hebrews presents Jesus sitting down because he's claimed victory over all things. So he doesn't need to stand anymore. He can sit down because everything's finished. It's done after the cross. But here he is standing standing. And the only thing we could do is speculate, and there's a lot of commentators that try to speculate. and, and for me, the, the, the best argument was this. as I imagined it in my own head, Jesus says, "Those who deny me before, th- those who deny me on earth, I will deny in heaven, but those who honor me on earth are those I will honor in heaven." And so as Stephen was ready to enter in to his eternal glory of heaven, it was was Jesus that was awaiting him standing there, honoring him before the Father. The first witness brought into heaven with Jesus Christ, standing ovation, honoring him before the Father. That Jesus honored Stephen as one who lived a life worthy of his name. It's a remarkable thing to think about. Frederick Buchner talks about this as it related to Stephen's stoning. He says, stoning somebody to death, even somebody as young and as healthy as Stephen, isn't easy. You don't get the job done with the first few rocks or broken bottles. And even after that, you've got the man down. It's a long and hot business. To prepare themselves for the workout, they stripped to the waist. And got somebody to keep an eye on, the, on their things until they were through. The man they got was the fire-breathing young arch-conservative Jew named Saul. Who was there because he thoroughly approved of what they were doing. I, I want to bring in this connection to chapter 8 for this reason. Because I, I want you to see that it was the witness of Stephen that gave birth to the reality of Saul coming into the story now. In the sovereignty of God. Now maybe Saul was there debating Stephen. Maybe Saul was there giving the words to Stephen of the trial. We don't know. But here Luke wants us to see Saul. And he also wants us to see the sovereignty of God. Because if you've read the book of Acts. Half of it is written about the life of Paul. Saul was converted to the apostle Paul. It was Saul who said this. He says... This is a trustworthy saying, deserving full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. I think Saul must have looked back at that occasion and grieved it. But Stephen tasted the eternal glory of heaven, and it gave birth to another who had come and declare of God's excellencies, who would be the murderer of murderers, who would be the one who tried to destroy and crush the church, and who would go through unmatchable sufferings for the name and fame of Christ. He says this in Romans eight thirty one and 32. He says, what then shall we say to these things? Speaking of persecution, despair, death, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? I wanted to bring this verse to close us because I wanted to to tell you that this verse is the verse that God uses to invite you into the story and saying, I'm holding nothing back for the life that I'm giving you. I'm giving you all things. Stephen, who tasted death by following the Holy Spirit and trusting the sovereignty of God, God gave him all things for this life. And he was used by God for the glory of God. And he tasted the sweetness of God even in death and suffering. And we will as well. But know this, the God who gave his only son. I mean, I think about, you saw the picture of my son. Man, I could never imagine what God tasted, the suffering that God himself experienced and endured on the cross on our behalf. He will not spare anything. He will not withhold any good gift from you. That you have everything that you need in the arms of God in Christ is proof. Let's pray. Father, thank you. God, we come to you, we submit to you. We ask that God, our stories would be wrapped up in your great and good and glorious story. That God, we would live for you and that our church, God, our church, Lord, will be a church that's marked not by the lesser stories of our city. But God, we try to retell those stories in light of Christ's finished work. And our stories, God, are shouting louder and louder the worship of King Jesus, the exaltation of King Jesus. And your Holy Spirit is moving us to be a people who see a city transformed by the power of the gospel for the glory of God. And the church says, Amen.